Welcome to the Governance Podcast at the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society at King's College London. Uh, my name is Mark Pennington, I'm the Director of the Centre, and today it's my great pleasure to welcome Professor Barry Weingast, who is the Ward C. Krebs Family Professor in the Department of Political Science at Stanford University, where he's also a Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. Professor Weingast served as Chair of the Department of Political Science from 1996 through 2001, He's a member of the National Academy of Sciences and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Barry's work focuses on the political foundation of markets, economic reform and regulation, where he's made path-breaking contributions to problems of political economy of development, federalism and decentralization, legal institutions, the rule of law and democracy. Barry, it's a great pleasure to have you with us here today. Um, I'd like to start, if I may, by asking you a question which is very close to the heart of the centre's mission, and that's to think about the age-old question of why some countries are rich and others are poor. Your answer to that question is that poor countries are stuck in what you call the violence trap. I wonder whether you could tell us what you mean by the violence trap and how your explanation for the persistence of poverty differs from some of the other explanations that have been heard in political economy. All right, so you've asked two questions, so let's parse them, deal with them separately. The first has to do with what the violence trap is, and the second has to do with how does the violence trap differ as an explanation from alternatives. Uh, both good questions. Uh, the violence trap is the idea that violence is endemic in the world and that all countries have to solve the problem of violence that violence needs to be mitigated. It's not something that naturally go, goes away. Uh, and so countries that face problems of violence uh, have, pro have trouble developing because the main way that they, developing countries mitigate or solve the problem of violence is by creating rents uh, and privileges through control of markets, control and manipulation of markets. Um, and so basically the idea is, is that most developing countries have multiple sources of violence. The state has no monopoly on violence. And as a consequence, um, people with violence power have to be appeased in order for them to cooperate, which means that they have to believe that they're better off cooperating than they would be were they to exercise violence. And so that's what creates the trap. The main way in which countries, developing countries mitigate violence has to do with control of markets, and control of markets means you don't have competitive economies. You have to control, in order to create privilege, you have to control markets and manipulate them in ways that forestall the value of market competition. And so it's kind of a trap. So the very things that prevent efficiency mm -hmm. are the things that are required to actually stop violence from taking place or yes. reducing the amount of violence. Yes, exactly. That's quite a bleak view uh, in many ways. <laughs> it is, but it also reflects the fact that despite, you know, 50 years of donor organizations spending trillions of dollars on development, that there hasn't been a lot of development since then. And, you know, that's something that I think is not an accident. Mm -hmm. So how would you say this explanation focusing on the violence trap, the idea that inefficiencies almost are required to stop violence or reduce violence, mm -hmm. How does that explanation of persistent poverty differ from some of the other explanations that we see in political economy? There are many sort of institutionally 
grounded explanations for poverty. How does yeah. your explanation differ from that, or how does it complement those? I think it complements a good many of the um, alternative explanations. There, there are several that have been popular over the years. One of the first had to do with the, the idea of capital, that poor countries were poor because they had less of what the developing countries had, in particular less capital. And so then the policy recommendation was to provide capital, which didn't seem to make much of a difference. Uh, so people looked at other kinds of variables, such as um, human capital and education. So the idea is, that, well, then the policy consequence is you increase the amount of education. Um, that also didn't seem to work. Another one is the idea of good governance, which was popular in, popular in the late 90s and early aughts. The idea that you needed good institutions and institutions of the right kind, such as um, courts that would enforce contracts and secure property rights. Uh, that turned out not to work very well either. So there are lots of alternatives. And, and I think part of the reason they failed is because of the nature of violence, that they ignore the problem of violence, and that economists, when they look at the problem of developing countries, they see the manipulation of markets, you know, which the, the violence trap agrees that's the major problem. But the difference is, is that they, economists tend to see it as very unproductive. It gets in the way. It's market intervention. It's as if there was a market that was then controlled. First there was a market and then it was controlled. Whereas in reality what's happening is that the, the, there never was a market. Instead there's only... Um, so this is the process that you refer to as rent creation. Yes. Which is the idea of distributing privileges which are actually necessary to reduce the amount of violence to maintain something like a reasonably peaceful state. Yeah. But paradoxically, the effect of these mechanisms, although they suppress the violence, they also block efficiency enhancing yes. moves. Yeah. So given well, how bleak a prognosis that is, mm -hmm. how can people escape from this? Is there, <laughs> is there any mechanism through which people escape from the violence trap? Well, I think that over time, the, the, if we go back to early modern times, you think about most most countries in, in Europe were developing countries. And so they've managed to develop, and so clearly they've escaped the violence trap. Of course, it's taken a long time, you know, several centuries. Uh, Mary Shirley, once a former economist at the World Bank, asked a question, does that mean that, that developing countries need also need 200 years to develop? And uh, uh, John Wallace, an economic historian at the University of Maryland, has a paper called The Mary Shirley Question, name, naming the question that she asks. And, and he grapples with this and suggests it's not quite true. But, you know, and we can observe in the few cases of development, such as China, Taiwan, South Korea, that in a couple of generations you can make quite fast progress. Just to go back to the previous point, I think there's very interesting um, parallel between your arguments about rent creation and the way some economists view these problems with lots of scholars of sort of institutional economics who emphasize the idea that they react against rather the notion that in the beginning there are markets mm -hmm. and they actually start from the beginning and your starting point effectively is in the beginning there is violence what can be done to move beyond violence um, and that is a very different type of analysis. Mm -hmm. Why do you think 
economists are resistant to that as a form of analysis or have been resistant to it? Well, I think one of the things that is not realized is that so much of economics has been developed through observations of developed societies. You know, the UK and the United States, for example. So many economists develop the whole apparatus of policy analysis, welfare economics, and uh, various subfields, you know, largely been developed through the study of developed economies. And that sort of holds content for this. I think the fiction of market intervention, I think, works for the developed countries because there are markets. You know, and part of what we see is the political manipulation of markets, um, which you can think of as market intervention. But I think in developing countries where there are no markets or much more manipulated markets, I think the fiction is not very useful. But, I, I should say I call that the neoclassical fallacy. Yeah. But the, I guess the implication of that would be that before uh, today's developed countries achieve their current state, uh, that the market intervention paradigm, as you describe it, wouldn't have been useful to describing how they developed yes, as well. I think that's right. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's one thing to recognize, as econom most economists do these days, that property rights, enforcement of property rights, uh, and contract and contracts is really central. And then it's another to understand, well, how, do, how does the developed world yeah. provide those? And how do you create a court system that actually works for justice as opposed to as a bribing mechanism that extract rents from people that need to resolve conflicts. So in many ways, this is a this is an argument against any view that uh, that markets are a natural phenomena. Yeah. It's an argument that markets have to be sustained within certain institutional conditions. Yes. But whether you actually get to those institutional conditions is the big question. Yes, I think that's right. And I think this goes back to Adam Smith, who I think understood this and talked much about the simultaneous rise of liberty at the same time as markets, mm -hmm. that you need the, uh, the idea of provision of you know, rights and restrictions on the predatory power of the state. So I think what's natural in his view is the tendency to truck barter in exchange. Mm -hmm. What's not natural is markets as the main means of that. That doesn't mean market forces are absent. They're there all yeah. the time. It's just that so many political systems control and manipulate the nature of markets and exchange processes. Yeah. So, I mean, another in an interesting implication of this argument would be, if we're thinking in policy terms, uh, what can be done, if anything, to help societies out of the violence trap? I mean... I know uh, something you said to us in one of the presentations that you've given uh, here in the department earlier in the week was the notion that many um, World Bank interventions, for example, have been premised on the idea of this market intervention view, yes. where the aim of policy should be to remove distortions in the developing world, when what your argument is suggesting is that actually, if you try to remove those distortions, you might actually intensify the process of violence. Mm -hmm. um, could you give a few examples of where you think that's happened? And, and also, perhaps we could go on to think then about what would be an alternative policy approach that can actually deal with this, this problem, that it's about rent creation. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I can give a great example of that. I think that there are lots of... So Kenya is a really interesting thing, example. Kenya in the late aughts, 
So our book, uh, my book with Doug, John, Doug, John, Doug North and John Wallace on the violence and the social orders came out in 2009. And as part of the process of writing it, we aired it at the World Bank, uh, in which someone was saying, this was in November of um, 2008, I believe, or 2007. I'm mixing up what year the election was in Kenya. Yeah. Uh, but it said, oh, but Kenya is making such great strides. It's an open access order. There's competition in markets. There's the ability to form organizations. And Doug answered, uh, Doug North answered by saying, just wait. This won't last. And sure enough, at the end of the year, the beginning of the next year, when there was an election, uh, the incumbent party saw that it would lose and tried to cancel the elections. And wouldn't step down, you know, knowing that it had an effect lost. And, and part of the reason has to do with the stakes of politics were really big under that. And there was no what we call per perpetuity of the institutions. Perpetuity is the idea that institutions last beyond uh, those the people that actually create them. And so the incumbents were so felt they would lose so much by transferring the property that was managed by the government, which they managed to their own private ends, would be transferred to the opposition. Yeah. I mean, it's not all, in, as I understand your argument, it's not only that, uh, that markets are, are not natural phenomena as such. Yeah. Uh, it's also that democracy isn't a natural institution Absolutely. either. Uh, so if we have to think about steps to building markets or, or building democracy, what will be the steps in the case of democracy that could be taken in places where it doesn't currently exist? Well, I think one of the important things to understand about democracy is that it is not wholly positive. That is, democracy imposes risks. Uh, it, it allows the government to jail people, to uh, impose taxes. And even when these things are not abused, they can be very costly. And so one of the characteristics of successful democracies, I think, has to do with the idea that all successful ones reduce the stakes of power. And the reason for this is Chile in 1973. That is when the legitimately elected government, the Allende government, started threatening landholders with major land reforms, which effectively would confiscate their wealth. They, they the, the landlords, were willing to support a coup. And a coup was disastrous for the society at the time. Uh, and that's why I think all constitutions need to limit the stakes of power. Whereas in the modern world, there's a tendency to identify democracy with elections. Mm -hmm. And elections alone are very high stakes, because if there's no boundaries on what the government can do, then you, you can take immense amounts in very legitimate or at least legal ways from other constituents. And no, those constituents are not willing to stand by the wayside often. They'd rather fight. Uh, and so as a consequence, successful democracies have to limit the stakes. And there's a lack of understanding, I think, of that very basic principle. And but is, is there anything that external bodies could do uh, to promote a better understanding of that? Or what kind of policies might flow that are different from the ones that we've seen that would be informed by that insight? Well, you, that's actually a multiple part qu question because you ask um, both what kinds of policies um, toward democracy would make a difference for successful democracy, mm. as well as what kinds of policies would be, what, what, what does the violence trap framework suggest as to what the policies for development should be? Yeah. So let's address each of those in sequence. Yeah. So the first question having to do with the 
democracy is to realize that democracy and liberalism are two separate parts that are very complementary. The idea that creating liberty and rights of citizens, which means you need to create something of a limited government. Now let me be clear about limited government because in modern parlance, that's often used by conservatives to mean small government. Limits on, I don't use the term that way. Limit on government means that governments can, ex, can honor rights of citizens, which is a constraint on their behavior. And so that's what limited government means. And creating the, the aspect of limited government, I think, is a really important part of the democratization process. And you can watch historically in Western Europe that all the democracies began with lots of restrictions on choice, uh, but nonetheless went and grew into more mature democracies. You can see the same thing in Taiwan and Korea, for example. So that's, with, that's the answer to the question with respect to democracy. With respect to development policy, that's, that's a very interesting point. So the idea has to be, I think, that um, you have to acknowledge the role of violence and the role of rent creation as a means of mitigating violence. That these are not unproductive, simply interest group and constituency pressure uh, that forces politics to transform markets or market intervention. Rather, I think, and, and so this framework suggests that we focus on s some of the elements of escaping the violence trap, which involve things like creating impersonal markets, impersonality and ru rule of law, which involves both impersonality and perpetuity. I think an interesting question is, are external agencies actually in a very good position to foster those policies. So mm -hmm. I wonder, how do you react to, say, the William, William Easterly style view, mm -hmm. which is pretty much that there's not a lot that external agencies can do, yeah. that they don't know enough about the conditions on the ground in many of these societies yeah. to intervene, whether it's through state building or development aid or other mechanisms to bring about the appropriate transitions. I guess an implication of his argument would be maybe even the kind of things you're recommending would officials know, external officials know how to implement the yeah. right policies in the right yeah. cultural setting? How do you react to that? I think there's a lot to that and that we need to face the fact that it might be true. You know, that it may be that despite best intentions, we really don't know what we're doing. And I think one of the interesting things about this is we've managed in the developed world, we've managed to develop without really knowing how we did it. You know, I don't think there's a deep understanding of this and especially the way in which politics has to interact in a systematic way with you know, markets in a way that fosters growth over the long term. Well, there's, I mean, the way you, you emphasize the, the role of ignorance there, I mean, the lecture that you gave for us yesterday evening on Adam Smith's uh, theory of organized religion focused very much on the role of unintended consequences in Smith's thought system. Mm -hmm. And the, the example that you gave there was that um, the sort of dysfunctional equilibrium that existed with um, a standoff between uh, secular lords and religious authorities uh, kept much of Europe in something like a poverty trap mm -hmm. uh, for many centuries. But then, almost by accident, through decisions that were made, you had the growth of cities, which provided a counterpoint to that. Mm -hmm. And the churches initially took decisions which promoted the cities and they didn't recognize that an effect of that would be ultimately an undermining of their mm -hmm. own power. Yes. That's very much an unintended consequences mm -hmm. explanation. It's also um, 
a sort of accident byproduct type view of history that that many people, even if they accept it, um, find to use a term I used earlier in the conversation quite bleak mm -hmm. in the sense that it doesn't seem to be something that we can program uh, or plan for or design policy mm -hmm. for. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's a fair characterization of the position? Well, I, I, that's a very pessimistic. I'm a little more optimistic than that, and I think that I think that we can learn, you know, from the past and current mistakes in ways that we can understand. I think some of the heart of the issues. So, for example, one of the key things I think that mitigates violence in the developed world is market integration. The idea that we are very highly specialized and there's lots of specialized investments where I depend on you and you depend on me uh, as well as others. And by integration means that were we to fight, the cost would, of disruption would be very high. And so it makes it much less likely that people will appeal to violence. And I think fostering market integration, I think, is, is maybe a key piece of this in terms of maintaining peace. So... But to think more broadly, one of the things we don't know is we haven't tried policies that directly aim at violence in the sense of how do we lower the probability of violence, raise the costs. You know, I think the idea of taking a war-torn country and one of the first things you do as far as reform is create democracy where democracy means elections, I think is very counterproductive because the stakes are so high that violence is likely to emerge, as, as in the case of Kenya. Mm -hmm. but, but what would be an example of a sort of democracy-promoting policy that isn't just focused on elections? Would that be something that is focused on constitutional settlement more broadly, that tries to bring in a number of different parties, but without a focus on whoever is going to be winning a majority at the next election? What would be the... What would be the kind of mechanism there that, that is different if you don't just focus on elections? Yeah, I think you, you mentioned the role of constitutions and a constitutional base, and I think that that's a very critical piece of it. Uh, and part of what that means is, is, again, the idea of limited government, that is, reducing the stakes of democracy so that people are less likely to fight if they find out themselves on the losing end. And another thing is making the situation, one of the things we see in all successful constitutions is the idea of a, a cons consensus condition. The idea that there's a re relatively widespread belief that this is a good system. And systems that solve problems in the beginning, such as follow war-torn areas that, that actually help mitigate violence from re-emerging, um, uh, are often considered often become to have normative value in the society in the sense that people think these are good institutions. They solve the problem of violence. And I think we see in lots of different revolutions uh, that create successful constitutions that they have this property. I mean, that's, that's an interesting question there, thinking about what is the role of beliefs or moral attitudes in your framework. So mm -hmm. we're operating here in a world where the analysis is focusing on the idea that there are potentially warring factions mm -hmm. that might try to seize control uh, at the expense of the other. And we're trying to think about mechanisms that might reduce their propensity to do that. Do you have a role in there for 
something that is separate from material interests, a sort of role of belief systems, ideologies, ethics, that actually transform the way that people see the games that they're yeah. actually playing with others. Yeah. Um, and what would be that mechanism? Well, I think that's a really important case. Um, so one way to think about this is to think about uh, post-Franco Spain. So Franco takes over uh, in a coup and civil war in the 1930s. And in 1939, he's the winner of the civil war between the Republicans and the uh, more conservative faction in society. And he remains the dictator for 40 years, 40 some odd years, uh, dies in 1975. And during the Franco regime, there were two different separate narratives about what happened in the civil war. And both sides blame the other for being the bad guys. And the Republicans, you know, that lost the war said, you know, that they they suffered at the hands of the uh, Franco regime, uh, Franco army and regime. And the conservatives said that the socialist government was a threat to society. Uh, and the foundations of society, the church, the military, for example, and the peasantry and so the two were two conflicting narratives, and one of the after Franco dies, there's an attempt at creating a constitution, a new constitution in Spain, and this guy Suarez is one of the leaders who's making the uh, managing the transition. He's a brilliant set of moves, and one of the first thing he does is to transform the nature of the narrative. The narrative was not that one side killed the other, uh, and that, but rather that brother fought brother. And that both sides had a lot to blame, and that this we should think of this not as one side doing something to the other side, but as a national tra tragedy that we should try and make so it doesn't ever happen again. I mean, that's very interesting because that implies to me a role for something like a conception of political entrepreneurship that political entrepreneurs, skillful mm -hmm. entrepreneurs, or constitution mm -hmm. builders are people who can change other people's perceptions. Mm -hmm. Of the nature of the game that's actually being I think played, very much so. Yes. So that people don't just seem stuck in a trap, but yeah. but that needs someone uh, who's inside the system somehow to step outside of it mm -hmm. and create a set of ideas yeah. that those parties who are still within the system yeah. can somehow subscribe yeah. to. I mean, w would you agree that that's what entrepreneurs or the role that they can or, think so, or yes. would hope that they would play in yes. politics? Yes, and that's what makes it so difficult because. Just because there's a role for one doesn't mean one will emerge. No. But one of the things we do see, so Jan Elster has a, well, written about constitutions for, for several decades, and one of the points he makes in a 2000 essay uh, is that so many of the stable constitutions that exist today that have been long-term, multi-generation, um, uh, are those that were created in crisis. And I think crisis is really important because there are lots of gains from cooperation to be had, and it's not a zero-sum game. Uh, and a lot of the successful constitutions are created in those. And when they actually solve problems, they often become venerated. And I think that's a really important thing, um, as is the articulation of the nature of the, the problem and the nature of the solution by the political entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. Do you see any implications being what what we what we've just been talking about for uh, some contemporary events um, and contemporary developments so we've just been emphasizing in the last few minutes the idea of people changing perceptions so that they see that there are possibly mutual gains from cooperation mm -hmm. 
that they haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, in today's world, there's an awful lot of us versus them kind of thinking, which seems to be creating a narrative which, you know, if it were to persist in the long term, you could see leading to a breakdown mm-hmm. of cooperation because mm-hmm. people would start to see themselves in permanently uh, zero sum or even negative sum situations. Um, you know, obviously the examples that I'm thinking of might be um, the, the president of the United yes. States emphasizing restrictions on trade, yeah. uh, but the rest of the world is a threat to the United States rather than a partner yeah. in some kind of mutually, mutually beneficial enterprise. So how do you see that at the moment? What do you think is the cause of that? Well, there's, you asked several different questions, and let me see if I can address some of them. I think you're, you're right to point out that polarization is potentially dangerous. And the reason is, is again, the consensus condition, the idea that when people have similar beliefs and react in concert, they can prevent various kinds of problems created by the government, various kinds of predation and discrimination. And that's very critical. And when you see the emergence of polarization, it makes it much harder for people to perceive that there's a middle ground, that there's a compromise. And when society actually thinks is composed of people that believe in good guys and bad guys, and all the people that are on one side think they're the good side and the other side's the bad side and vice versa, that can be very dangerous. And it's very hard to sustain limited government under these circumstances because people believe that the other side is illegitimate. And that's very dangerous. So, I mean, is there anything that your framework suggests might be deployed to try to get out of that, to to reverse that dynamic, if that's what is setting in at the moment? Or are we just going back to what we were saying before, that you actually need new entrepreneurs to come in and try to offer a more positive vision of of what can actually be achieved? Yeah, no, I think that that's right. You know, new visionaries are really critical in politics. You know, and they, they create different visions of the way the world works and different policy solutions. You know, I think the 30s is an example of that. You know, Franklin Roosevelt in the United States was very important for creating the nature of the narrative about what happened, what the problem is, and what the solution is. Just building on that a little bit, I wonder whether you might reflect um, on some of your earlier work on the notion of market-preserving federalism. Mm-hmm. So as I understand it, that's really part of a package of what you described as limited government, yes. where people commit to a set of institutions that constrain the government in some way, in the sense mm-hmm. that there are competing units uh, at a relatively decentralized level, and that those uh, preserve markets in many ways, partly because they are a sort of market that people can move to the jurisdictions that are mm-hmm. offering better protections for uh, property rights. How do you explain, or is there an explanation for the current move that there seems to be in America, but all in many other parts of the world since the financial crisis, um, that seems to be very skeptical of markets? How, how do you interpret those trends? Well, again, you asked two questions. You asked I about <laughs> market-preserving federalism uh, as a phenomenon, and then the question about you know, the trend away from markets, you know. So I think I have more to say about the former than the latter. Uh, As far as the former goes with market-preserving federalism, I think a very instructive case is China. 
so China, a lot of people say that study China say that China has said no, no political reform. And that's in part because what they focus on is the authoritarian nature of the Communist Party and the idea that there's no elections and there's no movement, no it seemed no movement uh, toward elections and indeed a very authoritarian stamping out of democratic, pro-democratic movements. And so I think that this perspective is wrong, the idea there's been no political reform, because political reform is more than just democracy. Authoritarians rarely choose, me choose mechanisms that limit their power. And part of what happened in the early phase of reform in the early 1980s was the creation of a federal system that decentralized authority over the economy uh, from the central government to the local governments, the provinces in particular. And Guangdong was allowed to move one step ahead and, and reform, and that was very important, I think, for the demonstration effect. So, for example, one of the things that occurred was there was a bowl of, I think, 636 or 363, I think 636 different items that peasants typically used that had ceilings on the prices. And so one of the first things that Guangdong does is remove the prices, price caps. And initially the prices rise because these were real constraints. And so people thought that's bad. But what, what they created was the nature of markets. And that, in combination with agrarian reform, meant that people started, private people started producing food for Guangdong. And as that supply side reaction became strong enough, the prices actually fell below the, uh, the market prices in Guangdong actually fell below the subsidized level. And one of the things that occurred in this province way up in the north near Korea, Heilongjiang, uh, was that the, the finance minister committed and the government committed to the, uh, 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 the, the existing system of subsidies and increased the subsidies, which meant they, they needed to find revenue for that. And the finance minister is watching Guangdong, and once Guangdong's prices fall below the, sub, the original subsidy rate, he says, why should we be propping up this system when if we move to markets, the prices will fall in a way that doesn't require us to pay for it? And so that's the nature I, of competition. I mean, that's another example that goes back to the earlier conversation. What seems to have happened in China is almost a sort of an unintended consequence of events that took place uh, leading to the spread of markets through this kind of mechanism. It doesn't right. seem to have been something that was planned as such. Yeah. It seems to have emerged from accidents. I mean, yeah. I know some people place a lot of emphasis on the role of uh, the Cultural Revolution having created chaos, right. uh, which allowed decentralized... Yeah. Uh, islands of authority to rise mm -hmm. up, which could do different things, yes. and then the successful experiment started to ripple out. Uh, that's another one of those accidental sort of stories. Yes. I think nobody knows in 1981 whether or not this yeah. will work. Yeah. And it's important to have chosen Guangdong because they're the historically the most market-oriented and yeah. the most likely experiment to succeed. Yeah. And it succeeds beyond anybody's dream. And the decentralization process means that the because there's so much development over the next decade, it means the provinces become economic powerhouses and are much more flush with revenue than is the central government. So the central government sort of dismantles this system of market-preserving federalism in the early yeah. 90s. I mean, this is this is the reason I did ask the, the, the questions together, thinking about current attitudes to markets, because if market-preserving federalism... Um, the kind of institutions that to some extent are reflected in the United States, mm -hmm. perhaps in other parts of the developed world, 
um, have the properties that you suggest, that they're kind of self-sustaining constitution. Mm -hmm. uh, they're required for good results, but those good results sort of generate their own internal support mechanisms. How do we explain these situations where you seem to get a decline in support almost for that constitutional settlement? Yeah. Uh, and that does seem to be something that is happening at the moment yeah. uh, in, in Europe uh, and in the United States. Yeah. Well, I think one of the important things is that we need to understand that markets have to be sustained and it's not automatic. Mm. And this is, again, part of the neoclassical fallacy, which just presumes that we have stable democratic and, and markets. And that, you know, the whole debate about the asymmetries in the income process means that a lot of people at the, at the, in, the, in the bottom half feel that they're being left out. And when they feel they're being left out, there's no support for the market. And so one of the key things I think about is that the market is has to be sustained. Mm. And in particular, I think that part of the way in which the West has done it is through various forms of social insurance. It's often called welfare and thought of as redistributive, but I think that's the wrong way to look at it. That's, again, this neoclassical fallacy. There exist markets. Yep. You get intervention. If you realize we have to sustain markets and that if people don't feel they have a stake in it, in the success of, if people feel they don't have a stake in the success of markets, then they're going to support populism and other anti-market kinds of policies. And so it's really critical, I think, to reduce the idiosyncratic risk of markets, which is what social insurance companies, social insurance policies do. So there's a role for social insurance very much within this limited government yes. notion. It's part of a sort of constitutional yes. settlement. Yes. Um, so, I mean, again, going back to the earlier conversation, actually using the term social insurance mm -hmm. as part of a narrative sounds very different to speaking of welfare. Um, I mean, do you think there is a role there for language in thinking about how we how these notions are actually effectively marketed to people? If you yes. use a term like social insurance, a much mm -hmm. more positive notion. Yes. A more inclusive notion than the idea of welfare. Right. That there are some people who pay out and other people who take yes. the benefits. Yeah. And so much, you know, there are welfare programs that are redistributive, you know, such as, uh, you know, in the United States, food. Yeah. You know, yep. to families with dependent children, for example. But I think um, a lot of the important social insurance programs, such as unemployment insurance, uh, uh, Basically, there's a pool of people that pay in, and they're the people that are eligible for the benefits. And so that looks much more like a, an insurance scheme, yep. you know, because the people that are paying in are also the beneficiaries of it. Yep. So I wonder whether you could just, just to wrap up maybe, maybe you could let us know what are your future projects? I mean, are you just going to be carrying on now working on the, the violence and social orders, work, which is a huge agenda. Mm -hmm. um, there are so many different aspects to your work. What are mm -hmm. you What are you going to be working on next? Well, I'm hopefully finishing my a book on Adam Smith's politics, okay. which I talked about last night in the public lecture. Uh, so that's that's one. But another thing that I've started to worry about is um, how do we know what works. You know, and so part of what we've been talking about is right. epistemic problems. Like, yeah. how do you kn know some things that might help poverty reduction and economic development? 
Um, and, and one of the things that's interesting is looking over from early modern Europe on where people were trying to understand how the world worked and how you can make it a better place. So Hobbes, for example, is, says at the end of the English Civil War in the middle of the 17th century, says that you can't divide power. The best you can do is create a system of authority an authoritarian government because to do anything else risks civil war. And so the idea is, is that security is the best you can do, even if the government is rapacious. You're better off with that than fighting another civil war. And so that sort of creates what, what, what I call working with Josh Ober, uh, classicist and political scientist at Stanford. And I've been working on this is um, the Hobbes challenge. The idea if you're going to create a system of limited government that has divided powers, you have to have an argument of why it can be sustained, that is why it's self-enforcing. And so we can look from as a lot of the major people that are thought of now as philosophers. So Hobbes and Harrington answering Hobbes a few years later, uh, uh, John Locke writing at the end of the 17th century, uh, David Hume in the early part of the 18th century, uh, Montesquieu in France, Adam Smith in, uh, uh, and then James Madison. Part of what they're doing is they're learning from each other and they're figuring out what the problems are in the world and they're coming up with solutions. And if you look at the evolution of the solutions that they propose, you move, you can see they're trying to address Hobbes' challenge. How do you make it work? And one of the things that Madison and, and the founders in America are often criticized for creating this, this, this system of checks and balances that really was very anti-democratic. And that's, in a way, an anachronistic interpretation because it's reading back what we know now into history, whereas now we know that you can support and develop world stable constitutional democracy. But in 1787, nobody knew if it could be done. And, you know, but, but it turns out that the speculation... Uh, in the series of people that I mentioned, uh, really learn something over time, both through practice and evolution and through more detailed analysis, so that when the Constitution in the United States is implemented in 1789, it actually tends to work. There are big unintended consequences, yeah. but it still becomes a stable system. Well, I think the other lesson, you know, from what you've been saying there, and actually all the problems that you've been discussing through this this podcast is the importance of um, bringing an understanding of political phenomena as well as economics yes. closer together yes. thinking about the rent creation problem the way we understand institutions mm -hmm. the way we understand markets mm -hmm. requires actually that politics and economics are understood in an integrated way they're yeah. not seen to be separate right and that's that's very much uh, the vision at the heart of CSGS and the Department of Political Economy here at King's so we've been really uh, delighted to host you, Barry, and uh, thank you very much for all the insights you provided both in this podcast and over the last few days here. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me. This has been a great pleasure to be here and to see all the energy and excitement that exists here in terms of this, and I look forward to seeing you become a major play player in the political economy over the coming decades. Thank you very much indeed.